Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is the award-winning author of many books, including Wanderlust, The Far Away Nearby, Recollections of My Non-Existence, and Men Explain Things to Me. She has also written for publications such as Harper's, The Guardian, and The London Review of Books. Her latest book, Orwell's Roses, is, as you'd expect, about George Orwell and Roses, but also Englishness, colonialism, coal mining, labour activism, Stalinism, and aesthetics, among other things. Rebecca Solnit, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Uh, so you write uh, towards the beginning of the book. You, you sort of had, I suppose, what people think a familiar route into Orwell. So it's Animal Farm as a, as a child, 1984 as a teenager, then the nonfiction in your 20s. Um, and in your essay on Virginia Woolf, you, you included him in your personal pantheon. Why has he been such an inspiration for so long? Oh, good heavens. I think he was one of the first essayists I came across who really saw the essay as a major form in which to do major work. I a lot of, uh, you know, when I was young, nonfiction was treated as not art, not literature, as this kind of trivial aside, maybe journalism. And, you know, poetry, fiction, and maybe playwriting were the holy trinity. And I knew I was going to be an essayist. and was kind of looking for models of how to do it. And Orwell was one of the great ones, partly just because he'd done it so much, he clearly was passionately committed to it. And some of his work was very formal. Some of it was taking on huge subjects. And some of it, like the essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, that sent me in search of his fruit trees, where I instead found his roses, was actually very casual. And then I think it was just the power and the beauty of his writing as well. Uh, you know, not just an essay can do this, but a sentence can do this. And, and your book starts with the image of Orwell planting roses in his garden in Wallington in 1936, and then goes in all directions. And you've written books on so many subjects. How do you know when an, an idea is going to sustain a book? You know, how did you get, I suppose, from that image to the thought that you could, you could write about all these other things? Oh, it happened so soon after the lovely people who live in Orwell's cottage said, well, the fruit trees have been cut down, but would you like to see the roses he planted? We're not sure now that these are actually his roses, but the idea was so exciting. And I realized, though, I knew the essay in which he talks about planting the roses and the fruit trees. I'd never really thought about what it meant that this man, seen so often as kind of grim and stern and pessimistic and a prophet of doom, had planted roses. It felt like that alone brought up a lot of the conflicts the left always has about pleasure and beauty and things that aren't utilitarian. 
but that also it opened up the natural world as a political arena and so many other questions and, uh, you know, led me to look harder at Orwell. I knew his work pretty well, but I didn't know him very well. And so I went to his journals and letters and found an Orwell who took a lot more pleasure in everyday life and was really different than the ambient image of him as this sort of grim, gray figure. I mean, I suppose the curse of Orwell is that he is generally defined by his last five years from, you know, Animal Farm and 1984, and then his illness and death. And so this does, of course, make him seem extremely earnest and gloomy. And I think readers of 1984, they're always looking for different reasons to take some hope from, from what is ostensibly such a bleak story. In sort of plot terms, you've got Margaret Atwood's theory about the appendix, which you mentioned, or Octavia Butler's line, which you quote, the very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and offer warnings is in itself an act of hope. So for you, is is where you found, I suppose, I don't know whether it's hope or some light in that book, was it more in those, um, in the appreciation for these sort of small pleasures, relics of the past, natural metaphors rather than sort of trying to you know rethink the plot there were various things that i found hopeful and i found the whole book profoundly different after getting to know orwell the gardener and sort of orwell the cheerful in some sense one thing was just the tactile sensory experiences winston smith passionately pursues the fact that 1984 opens with winston pulling out this book and luxuriating in the creamy texture of the paper and the act of writing itself and in having his independent private thoughts, I think is really telling that that itself is an act of rebellion, of being fully conscious, of being independent-minded. There's over and over a sense that just being grounded in the world of the senses and firsthand experience in a kind of empiricism is itself a form of resistance. It won't topple Big Brother, but it might make a self that's capable of thinking independently and in some sense beginning to topple Big Brother. And then finally, Winston himself thinks over and over, if there's hope, it lies in the proles. I think the book is often read to say that, oh, Winston is us, and then he fails, so we fail. But Winston isn't what the book is betting on for who's going to matter in resisting this totalitarian regime. I think it's the proles. And the prole who we see over and over towards the end of the book is this washerwoman, this big, sturdy, middle-aged woman hanging out diapers. And Winston thinks she could have been there for a thousand years. She seems like this kind of primordial goddess of fertility and life and vitality. And she's singing a song he, he and Orwell seemed to think is quite trashy in its sentimentality, but singing this exquisitely beautiful voice with a Cockney accent. And he sees her doing the same thing three times. And for me, the climax of the book is that third time where he sees her and thinks that she's beautiful. And it feels like a breakthrough for both Orwell, who's not a notable feminist, and for Winston to see this stout, reddened, coarse and middle-aged woman as beautiful, and it reminds us, you know, there's all these powerful women in the book, his mother, his lover, um, this wonderful old drunk who befriends him 
in the uh, in the prison afterwards. And this woman, this extraordinary figure, and he thinks to himself that she has the beauty of the rose hip, not the rose. And why should the rose hip be inferior to the rose? And it was really startling after running into his roses themselves, still growing perhaps, to find that the central metaphor that drives home this appreciation of this woman's power and beauty is roses. And something I've been interested in for many years is how much the natural world gives us all our metaphors, which in some sense are our our ability to think spatial metaphors, the shoulder of the road, the headlands um, on the coast, you know, animal metaphors, metaphors of time, all that biblical sowing and reaping and stuff like that. And here's Orwell using a rose metaphor uh, in an absolutely crucial moment in, you know, his masterpiece. And I found that striking, but also it felt really, you know, the power of this woman and Winston's ability to recognize her struck me in a way they hadn't the many, many times over many decades I'd read the book before. And it was so exciting to come back and find a book that felt so different Yes, yes, yes. Which is interesting for a book that I remember. The t- you know, the, the, I don't remember at the time. Sorry, I remember reading the, the, the time. Some people just went, "Oh, well, this is sort of just very uh, topical, sort of didacticism, and it won't sort of age very well." But there's all that, all those details and the dreamlike texture of it, which sort of makes it quite the opposite. Yeah, I was also struck by how, as you say, dreamlike it was, because it's often treated as though it's a conventionally realist novel when Winston dreams about the golden country and a lover who tears off her garments with a gesture of defiance and then actually finds the golden landscape with the lover who will tear off her garments in exactly that manner. And it is a very dreamy, almost surrealist feeling novel in a lot of ways, which I hadn't really noticed before. So in a way, I think I'm confessing that there's a lot of conventional ideas about Orwell out there that I accepted until I went back and scrutinized harder. I would say about those last five years, though, he's dying, you know, he's coming into his own as a writer, but he's also, you know, planting that garden in Jura that rises to become a 16-acre farm, according to his son, Richard Blair. You know, he's fishing, he's, you know, following his dream, which is to live on a Hebridean island. And so he's actually almost even more engaged with these pleasures and meanings with the natural world, with gardening and stuff. And I love it that he quits all this journalism in the spring of 1946 to write 1984, but he doesn't launch straight into the book. He packs up the cottage at Wallington and moves all his stuff to Jura and starts this life where he's busy all day, you know, hunting rabbits, mending fences, planting things, and really setting himself up as a kind of weird socialist gentleman farmer. But, you know, in a very practical sense, since you all were on rationing and food was very poor in those days, getting himself and his son out of the terrible air of London into the fresh air and into providing a lot of really good food of their own rabbits and fishes and, you know, the uh, geese they raise and all this garden stuff ultimately a cow or two of their own. Yeah, yeah. 
There's some great procrastinating on the writing front there. But is it procrastinating? Because the other thing that his gardening raised for me is the question of what I'll, what are those things we need to do that might seem trivial or indulgent or frivolous that, you know, a lot of leftists would tell us were bourgeois, you know, or, or unnecessary, but that are the things we need to do so we can do the really important work that we're here on earth to do. And for Orwell, you know, it seemed that in some sense he needed to do the gardening and, uh, and he never really tells us why he needs to do it, but does he need to plant that farm at Jura? Is that when he's doing the thinking or somehow stabilizing a sense of self or life so he can then write 1984? And, you know, and, and I, I think Orwell was very much against a certain kind of utilitarian authoritarianism on the left, the woman who writes him that flowers are bourgeois, the people who tell you what you should and shouldn't enjoy and should and shouldn't do with your life. And that, you know, they would all say, of course, he should write political things, but that this other stuff is unnecessary. And so I'm not certain, but is it unnecessary um, is it procrastination or is it really part of the writing? And a lot of other writers need to run or, you know, do these other things that take you away from your laptop and your desk, but not necessarily away from your thinking or your preparing to think and write. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And there's another thing that you kind of you know, a, a strand of his writing that you bring to the surface about being aware of where things come from, where our luxuries come from. So he talks about the sort of the plantations in the empire that enable people to put sugar in their tea and that people should be aware of that. So is that Rose factory that you visit in Colombia or, you know, an iPhone factory in China? Are these the sort of the modern equivalents? And I suppose what you do we do that visit is try and go, well, like this, this is what it takes so that you can have cheap roses. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a kind of, without getting too sentimental about it, a kind of agrarian world from which most of us emerged in which if you had a sweater, you knew the wool came from a sheep and you might know the sheep or your mother might have knitted it, you know, that, that you understood most of what you used came from the world around you and you understood the processes, you knew a blacksmith you knew a carpenter, you knew where the fuel that warmed your home came from. And we don't live in that world anymore. It's very easy to be unconnected to our commodities, to the materials they're made from, which is often ecologically horrific, to the labor that makes them, which is also often horrific. And so much of the work of human rights, labor rights, and environmental activists over the past few decades, or maybe more, has just been making us see this is what's happening to the rainforest. This is what labor looks like in the global south where, you know, I remember it beginning with Nike sneakers and sweatshops making clothing. You know, now it's iPhones and lots of other commodities. 
And Orwell was very aware of that. And of course, perhaps partly because of his own family. His father was a British opium agent. We now think opium and heroin are the stuff of drug dealers and crime syndicates, but the British government was probably the world's biggest opium producer back in the day. And his father had a government job overseeing opium production to sort of foist upon China in order to have a trade good to get all those useful things that even back then they wanted from China. And then the posh part of Orwell's background was an ancestral Blair, his real name, of course, being Eric Blair, who married into the aristocracy because, and which he was eligible to do because he was terribly wealthy because he owned slave plantations in Jamaica and also owned a lot of enslaved human beings. And that part of his background, you know, as well as his mother's father, who was making money off teak in Burma. And so he's really connected to these colonial commodities, opium poppies in India, teak in Burma, sugar in Jamaica directly. And But is, you know, chooses to be very aware of it and in a lot of ways to be an anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist, in part by reminding people that our stuff comes from somewhere And of course, living in the country is seeing where at least some of the stuff comes from. And in going to Colombia to look at the rose industry, I wanted to look at what I think we've all been trying to do when we do that labor and human rights and environmental work to remind people that the things that might be very fun and pretty when we or useful when we get them often have a hideous origin. I'd known about the roses for a long time, that most of the roses sold in the U.S. come from pretty nasty working conditions and environmental production in Colombia and to a lesser extent Ecuador, just as most of your flowers, I think, in the UK come from, I think, Kenya and Ethiopia in similarly grim conditions. And to actually go see the ugliness of rose production, to see roses as a completely alienated commodity. And so I managed to get into one of the rose plantations and see the workers in something as factory-like as any Manchester mill in 1870, producing the bouquets that people were going to buy, thinking that they meant loveliness and beauty and sweetness and some sort of pastoral thing that they don't mean at all when they're produced in those conditions. Well, I should point out to listeners that, you know, that there is obviously the story of Orwell in here, and there's, but there's all these other kind of things like like the rose plantation, like the sort of origin of the, the activist phrase, bread and roses, and Stalin's obsession with trying to grow lemons in Moscow. And the one that really was eye-opening for me was the story of Tina Madotti, who was a celebrated photographer and activist who became a fanatical Stalinist, and your way into her is this famous beautiful photo of roses. Can you just say a little bit about her and why you wanted to sort of say so much about her story in the book? Yeah, and thank you for noticing. In some ways, the roses gave me a portal to think about Orwell in what I hope are fresh ways, but Orwell gave me a portal to think about the natural world in relationship to the political in ways that I'd wanted to as well. Tina Madotti's most famous photograph in some ways is this beautiful photograph of roses 
And she had this remarkable life, you know, as a working class immigrant from Italy who comes to San Francisco and then goes to L.A. and becomes a, a student as well as the lover of the great modernist photographer Edward Weston. They go to Mexico together and she becomes very much part of post-revolutionary left wing Mexico, hanging out with Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo and et cetera. And then her lover is assassinated and she's blamed for it and deported on the ship. She's deported from Mexico on is another Italian left-wing person named Vittorio Vidali, who becomes her lover and her partner for the rest of her life. He is actually an assassin for Stalin's NKVD, the international secret police. And I feel like with what we understand as feminists now, we might be able to look at her life harder but the stuff I found in English didn't do quite enough. Was she just under this man's thumb for the rest of her life? He was quite a terrifying person who personally tortured and assassinated the leader of Orwell's POUM faction in the Spanish Civil War. So Madani was interesting because, of course, the roses and because she really converges with Orwell in being part of the Spanish Civil War. But she's part of the Soviet alliance uh communists who actually make it a three-sided war. There's also a very conventional view in which it's, oh, the loyalists against the fascists, but it's really the communists against all the dissident leftists, the Trotskyists and anarchists, as well as against the loyalists. And Orwell's realization of this is really what makes him the great political figure he is, as well you know, because of your own wonderful book, you know, The Ministry of Truth, which was so great to read when I was writing this. But what Tina Madotti also raises for me is that on the left, which I more or less grew up in, we treat everybody as the left and we treat people uh, who we've been calling communists as though they just held the official communist beliefs about the redistribution of wealth, etc. But a huge proportion of those people we've treated as wholesome parts of the left were essentially Stalinists turning a blind eye or fully supporting, you know, show trials, gulags, mass exterminations, and, you know, essentially the totalitarianism that Orwell models in 1984 and Animal Farm. And that is something really spooky, this kind of these skeletons in the closet, this unexamined history in the past on the left that I think is part of why we still treat a lot of people who still support authoritarianisms from Assad to Vladimir Putin often as part of the left. And I don't think there should be an admissions committee or anything, but I do wish there was a left that was agreed upon the idea that we all agree that absolute equality and universal human rights are a bottom line and that if you're not for those or you support dictators who are never for those things, then maybe you're not the left. You know, we haven't really had the house cleaning to determine just maybe the categorical different ways in which we define people's politics and that if we have a grab bag in which some people support authoritarian dictatorships, you know, and genocide, that's also supposed to be congruent with human rights activists and people who believe in equality and equality and distribution of resources, then we're pretty incoherent. 
I finally I wanted to ask which of Orwell's essays would you recommend to anyone interested in these kind of ideas? I suppose that that other side of him that a lot of people forget or are perhaps not even aware of, you know, the kind of the pleasure lover and the nature lover. Yeah. And of course, why, you know, why I write where he talks about his commitment to language itself and make creating a political writing that's compatible with the sort of more personal aesthetic desires he has politics and the English language where he talks about the language that can excuse or justify human rights abuses. And of course, this is like walking into a bar and trying to remember what I like to drink. (laughs) But I find, you know, all his essays have something to say about how we use language, about values and principles. They often veer from what can seem very lightweight and pleasurable to very heavyweight things. And, um, you know, a good word for the Vicar of Bray talks about tree planting, but also talks about people who've committed some pretty corrupt crimes against their fellow people in their time, but whose trees have outlived everything else they did. Now I wish I could run over and thumb through my Orwell anthologies to give you the answer. Well, that's good. That's good. People can get started on those. Thank you so much for joining me, Rebecca Solnit. My pleasure. Thank you. Orwell's Roses is out now, published by Granta. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend or giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.